God has dealt richly with us indeed. As we see from our sermon text this morning, Romans 5, verses 12 through 15. Now, so that we can see that in context, we're going to read last Sunday's text first. So we'll start reading at verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. The apostle writes, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded. For many. Amen. Beloved of God the Father, through Christ the Son, it has been said, usually by history professors, that if you want to understand the present, you have to start by understanding the past. Now, of course, history professors have a vested interest in cultivating the study of history. But the idea is exceptionally true. Those who would understand events of today really need to start by understanding the days that preceded. Because mankind and human society are predictable. Study how men of power have acted, how nations have progressed, how wars have unfolded. Study what has happened in the past. And you'll understand what is happening and what is likely to happen in the future. To understand the end of an event, it helps to understand its beginning. Why did a business fail? Well, what factors were involved in its start? Why did a husband become abusive? Well, what kind of home was he raised in? Why did a civilization collapse into anarchy? Well, on what basis was it founded? If you would understand the end, be it of a person or a nation or a business or an event, you have to start by looking at the beginning. And so it is with mankind as a whole. Last week we saw how God revealed the uniqueness of His grace in the sacrifice of His Son. We saw that the sending of Jesus revealed how generous God's love is and also how complete God's deliverance would be. This coming week, as we mark the climax of Jesus' suffering and the victory he attained for us, we're going to see that that Jesus accomplished far more than simply the erasing of our sins. 
God wasn't content merely to put us back at the beginning to give us a second chance. No, our God provided for us in His Son absolutely everything we would need. But to understand that, to understand why Jesus had to come and what He was seeking to accomplish, we need to start at the beginning with the first man, Adam. And so that's what He does here. He pauses for a moment, gives us a brief interlude, takes us back to the start of mankind so that we can see where it all went off the rails, where it all went sideways. Because only then can we see how Jesus not only restores us, but brings us to where Adam should have brought us. And so we see in this text that God sent his son, not merely as something out of the blue, Not merely as something utterly disconnected from everything that preceded, but he sent his son as mankind's second Adam. Or we might even say his final Adam. God sent his son as mankind's second Adam. That's our theme this morning. And clearly that means we need to start by looking at Adam, the one man through whom we fell. And that's our first point. Adam, the one man through whom we fell. Of course, Adam was our first father, the first human being whom God created. Genetically, we're all descended from him. We relate to each other through Adam as members of his family. But Adam also, as that first man, was our representative before God. He had a relationship with the creator that was unique. What he would do with that relationship, that would be determinative, that would be really setting the course for all who would follow. Adam, his very name represents us. Throughout the Old Testament, wherever you see man referred to, the Hebrew word is Adam. Adam was the first. He was the one who set the pattern for how we would live, for how we would respond to God, for how we would respond also to our fellow man. Adam was in nearly every way the start of what we would become. And that means if we would understand who we are, the situation in which we, into which we were born, we need to understand Adam. Now Adam's defining act, of course, was also the moment of his greatest shame. At the start of our text, Paul calls Adam the one man through whom sin came into the world. Kids, you remember the story of Adam's sin, right? God put Adam into the Garden of Eden to care for it, to work it. He gave to Adam Eve, his wife. Gave him dominion over all of the animals of the world. Gave him a beautiful place to live. And the permission to partake as food of any of the fruits and vegetables of the garden. But there was one tree the fruit of which he must not eat. In fact, he told him. In Genesis 2, verse 17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And of course, we know what happened right after that. Satan came and began talking to Eve. Began calling her to doubt the trustworthiness of God. First by 
exaggerating the command that God gave, making it seem just a bit unreasonable, urging her to do her own research, to think for herself. Does that sound familiar? Oh, do we hear that in our society today? Think for yourself. Test it your own self. Don't believe others. Well, Adam was there. He knew the truth. He had heard from God himself what must not be done and what the consequence would be. But he didn't silence Satan's voice. He didn't correct his wife. He allowed her to partake of the fruit. And when she didn't immediately die, he joined her in that rebellion. And as a result, God came and he spoke his curse to Satan. He gave the assurance that one would come who would crush him, who would destroy him. To Eve, he told her that her most amazing task, bearing children, would now come with pain. And that her closest relationship with her husband now would be fraught with bitterness and disputes. And Adam, who was given dominion over all the world, now would would face that dominion as a curse. It would be frustrated. It would be filled with toil. And at the end, he would physically die, being separated from all that he had known, all that he had loved. But then immediately he was cast out of the presence of God. He was spiritually plunged into death, being cast away from God and all his blessings. But it didn't stop with Adam or Eve, because the sin of Adam, well, because of that sin, sin came into all the world. No longer would men have the ability to live a life of righteousness. Sin would now taint his Man's every thought, his every deed, his every word. Adam sinned and we too became sinners. The curse God spoke against him. We would endure. The pain, the toil, the conflict. It's all that we've ever known in this fallen world. And because sin has come, death entered the world. Death is the just and proper consequence of sin. God warned Adam... Before sin ever happened, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And he did. He was cast out from the presence of God. His physical death merely demonstrated what he had entered into that very day. Separation. Separation from blessing, separation from goodness, separation from communion with God. And what happened to Adam would also happen to mankind. Adam was cast out from Eden and later physically died. But before he died, he saw his son, Abel, die. This time, at the hand of his wicked son, Cain. And in the same manner, Genesis 5 describes a whole string of Adam's descendants. And of each man, the account closes, and he died. The years of his life were this, and he bore sons and daughters, and he died. It's the conclusion of every life that was born of the line of Adam. It is the epilogue to every person, man, woman, or child who has ever been born, and he died. He lived, he acted, he died. Because 
each one of us is sinful. Genesis 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1 warns us, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is Adam's legacy. This is our inheritance. But then Paul rises to a possible objection. How, how, one might ask, can sin be counted apart from law? After all, Adam's sin was sinful because it violated a command. God said, don't do this. He did it. And Romans 4 verse 15 says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, if there's no particular command until Moses comes along, how can man be called a sinner? How can man face the consequence of sin? Well, Paul points out there was sin even though there was no law. God warned Cain that it was sin that was seeking to master him. He later condemned mankind in the flood because of their sin. He later destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they had devoted themselves to sin. See, even without a written law, sin existed because God has made us to know right from wrong. Romans 2 verse 15 says the work of the law is written on our hearts. In our consciences, in our consciences, we know when we're doing wrong. It doesn't necessarily stop us, but it testifies against us. Think of it this way. If there was a new nation established, let's say that Michigan decided to secede from the Union, and it was allowed to, and so suddenly we have a new nation. But with a new nation, we need a new constitution, we need a new code of laws, we need all these things. So for a few months, perhaps, the, the few months it takes for, the, for elected officials to be gathered together and to orchestrate all this, there's no law. Michigan is a place of anarchy. During that time, until that code of laws is adopted... People steal things. People slander other people. Some are attacked. A few even are killed. Now, being no code or having no code of law, there's no punishment for those actions. We can't say, well, you violated this law or this command, but everybody knows they're wrong, right? Everybody knows that... It was wrong for this person to take what belonged to that person, for this other person to attack a third person. We know it's wrong because it's written in our hearts. And Paul says that was the case in the world even before God gave his law by Moses. There was no explicit command of God which man might transgress, but even so we knew that what we were doing was wrong. It's written on our hearts. And therefore death reigned even from Adam to Moses. Death was a controlling force. None was able to stop it, to overthrow it, to prevent it. Because sin has been man's constant desire. That sin and death which Adam's sin introduced is what made Adam's sin unique. See, Adam knew what God had commanded. That he not eat the fruit of that one tree. But he also knew, not just the consequence for that sin for himself. He knew that he was acting on our behalf. He knew that he was our representative. So that if he would obey God, we would be given a life of obedience. 
But if he disobeyed, if he became a rebel, we would become rebels. We would be cut off from God. We would be plunged into the consequence of his sin. He knew that. He might not have seen all the fullness of what it would look like, but he knew that he was acting on our behalf and he did it anyway. And so from the word go, we are born guilty. Before we do one thing, right or wrong, we're condemned in Adam. Worthy of death because of his sin, because he plunged us into rebellion against God. And every single one of us, from the word go, ratifies it by the way that we behave. Look at your children, whom you love, whom you cherish, but who share with you the cost and the consequence of Adam's sin. You could never teach them all of the sins that come so naturally. To read, to write, to walk, to obey. Those things they have to learn. Those things they gain at the cost of much education. But to sin, that comes without lesson. That they master without even trying. Our hearts break when we see the first signs of hard-heartedness in them. We weep at their frailty. How quickly they turn to do what is wrong and how slow and how hard of a struggle it is for them to do right. That's the cost of Adam's sin. That's the consequence that has come to every one of us from the word go. We see it in our society as a whole. Left unchecked, the sin of man will utterly consume any gathering of people. And therefore it is essential for any nation, for any society to have a rule of law. To have leaders who will apply that law and enforce it. And yet every single nation has leaders who are sinful, leaders who are corrupt, leaders who twist the rule of law into a a form that will benefit them while harming their opponents. We saw that. We saw brilliant examples of that last week, didn't we? We continue to see that and we... We ought not to be surprised by it. All of that is the consequence of man's sin. It infects every individual. It infects every society. And it leads to death. It leads to death. It it causes the heart of every child to be estranged from God from the start. Every person... Without divine intervention, every person is cut off from God. Though they live, they are dead. Twisting the testimony of the world around them and seeking to silence the voice within them so that they can pretend that God doesn't exist, so that they can pretend that they're in control, so that they can pretend that there won't be a consequence for their sin and their rebellion. It's all a lie and in their hearts they know it. And in the end, they physically die. That's what Adam did for us. That's where we start. And yet we do not despair for one reason and one reason alone. And that's that Adam, though he was the first, was not the last. God promised upon Adam's fall that he would send a son. A son not of Adam, but of Eve. A son not of rebellion and death, but of restoration and new life. This one would come as the second Adam, being like the one through whom we fell, but in essential ways being absolutely different. For this son would be the the one man who makes us well 
And that's our last point, which we find in verse 15. Paul calls us to consider this second Adam by saying that the first Adam was, verse 14, a type of the one who was to come. Our first father Adam was a type. He was a pattern, an image of another. That other man would have then an essential likeness to Adam. Adam was a man. And so the second Adam must be a man, formed to bear the image of our, of our God and Father. Called to act by God, called to act in serving His Maker, receiving God's command to obey faithfully, to avoid all sin. As Adam was created by God to represent others, so also this second Adam, he would not act only on his own behalf, but also for all of those who were entrusted to him, also for all of those who would come to him. His choices, his actions, his failure or success would have determinative significance for those whom he represented. So there would be an essential likeness between the first Adam and the second, who is Jesus. Both would be men, both would live and act on behalf of men. But there, Paul shows us, there the likeness ends. Because as this second Adam embraced his calling, he would stand in radical contrast with our first father. The first Adam was faithless in answering the calling of God. He rejected the command God gave. He refused to trust the Lord fully. He, he, he would decide. whether to eat or not eat, whether to obey or not obey, whether to ratify the law of God or to reject it. And therefore the inheritance of our first Adam was tragic. By his sin we received guilt and our nature was corrupted. The first Adam ensured our condemnation from the word go. And therefore if we were to be saved from our condemnation, the second Adam must be radically different. Not a source of sin, but a source of righteousness. Not a cause of death, but a cause of life. And that's precisely what Jesus, the Son of God, is. He's the one who fulfilled the likeness of Adam, but who acted precisely the opposite. We'll consider more of those differences on Friday, but consider now simply what Paul says in verse 15. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass is what Adam accomplished. Hearing God's command, he disobeyed. Knowing God's calling, he rebelled. But Jesus came as a gift. He would obey at every point where Adam disobeyed. He would bless us in a manner that would reverse Adam's curse. Many died through the one man's trespass. That was the result of Adam's life. He sinned and we sinned in Him. He was sentenced to death and so therefore are we. But not so the man Jesus Christ. As certain, as sure as was our condemnation in Adam, much more certain is the grace we receive through the one man Jesus Christ. At each point where Adam rebelled, Jesus obeyed. At each point where Adam sinned, Jesus was righteous. Adam transgressed one command of God. Jesus kept every command of God. And therefore the result brought by this man is grace abounding unto life. This, beloved, this 
is why Jesus came. This is what we celebrate. When we pause to celebrate the cross on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's why, according to Philippians 2, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He obeyed God so perfectly, so fully, so completely, that on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father would speak of him saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Pontius Pilate, in trial, three times declared, I find no fault in him. He lived an absolutely perfect life, the likes of which none of us could have ever accomplished. And yet, he died as a criminal, condemned by the authorities, scorned by the people, shamed by the whole world. And worse than all of that, rejected by God the Father. For three hours, darkness descended upon the land. The light of God's favor withheld from him. Not because he deserved God's rejection, but because he bore the sins that we committed and that we would commit, which did deserve God's wrath. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that he could never have been forsaken for his sin. He had no sin. But bearing the wrath of God for our sin. He came, he lived, he suffered, he died for us. His life accomplished all the righteousness that we were unable to accomplish. His suffering and death overcame all the consequence of our sin, all the justice that we deserved for our rebellion. All of it he did so that the grace of God and the free gift might abound unto many. Nothing less would suffice. Nothing less would save us. And because he did it all perfectly, brothers and sisters... We can be made well. Consider what that means. In Adam, from the word go, you deserve death. You deserve condemnation. You deserve to be cast off from God and from His goodness. But in Jesus, through faith, in Jesus, through faith, There is no price to be paid for even one of your sins. There is no suffering that you deserve because he took it all. There is nothing left against you. It's all been erased. It's all been wiped out. It's all been covered by his blood. And more than that, when we stand before God, we are clothed in the righteousness and holiness of God as though we had never sinned nor been a sinner, Lord's Day 27 says. As though we were as perfectly righteous as Christ was righteous for us. Is that not amazing? And all we must do, but what we must do, is trust in Him. We must put our hope not at all in ourselves, not at all in our traditions, not at all even in our church membership or our families. We must put our hope and our faith and our confidence in Christ and in Him alone. We must refuse to try to take apart 
in that salvation, to try to do our peace, to, to help ourselves. No, it's got to be all Christ, and we've got to confess that before the world. We've got to confess that for all to see. In me there is nothing good, but in Him there is everything good, and therefore I rest in Him. I am clothed with Him. I am in Him a new creation, and therefore I live for Him. I take up His law, not because I think by it I can attain anything, not because I think by it I can merit. No! but only because I am grateful that He has done it all, that He has left nothing undone, that in Him I am completely right with God. When you put yourself in Christ's care, when you trust in Him entirely, confessing that even for that faith, I am indebted to Him, everything changes. So many people blame their situation on things they can't control. Well, it's because of how I was raised. Well, it's because of the... the, atmosphere in which I was brought up. I never had a chance. You know what? There's some truth to that. We kind of mock that attitude because people use it as an excuse for their poor behavior, for their sin. But you know, the truth is, in Adam, we couldn't do anything other than sin. We wouldn't do anything other than rebel against God. But Christ. He's the one who makes all the difference. He's the one who pulls us out of the pit, sets us high upon a rock, ensures that we will live and that we will live abundantly. He is the one who makes us a new creation. And if you have trusted in Him, if He is your help and your strength, then no longer are you a son of Adam. You are a son of God. No longer does Adam give you cover for your sin. No longer does Adam give you an excuse for your rebellion. You are a new creation. You are to live as a new creation, giving all the credit, all the glory, now and always unto Him. How wonderful. How amazing. What an astonishing gift. And it's all because of the second Adam, the greater Adam, who is Jesus Christ. We'll talk about what exactly he did to bring us that gift on Friday. But for now, we need to remember simply this. All the ruination and the ugliness and the curse that we received through Adam, it's gone in Christ. If only we will trust in him. By God's strength in us, may we trust him fully, completely, absolutely. And may we live as the new creation we are in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you indeed. That you have given us precisely what we need. What we would have never asked for in our sin. You gave us your son. And in him you utterly reversed the ugliness of the curse that we possessed in Adam. Cause us now, by your Spirit, to trust in Christ and to live as those who are clothed with him. And Father, may you receive the glory that you deserve through this your people. In Jesus' name, amen.